0: Just come together now come together now it's time to help each other out help each other out it's time for transformation
1: Hey, I'm Dr. Stephanie, a life coach and a physician and the host of the SOAR podcast, a place where black women get to tell their stories about overcoming limiting beliefs. One week, my conversation with a college dean on colorism may spark activism. And the next week, you might feel like a fly on the wall listening as I hold space for a teacher who's fighting to hold back tears. My guests are diverse like beautiful feathers that make up the wings of our sisterhood. Hello. Hello, Dion, and welcome to SOAR. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Good evening and good evening to all of my guests out there. We like to have an interactive podcast here, which is why we do it live. So feel free to make comments in the comment section or ask questions. You're definitely going to want to be engaged in this conversation. But first, I would like to introduce my guest. So we have Dionne Yvette Brown. She's a minister of the gospel who has been anointed by God, but refused ordination by the institutional church. She's been driven by education, excellence, and ethics all her life. Those qualities did not serve her well in the church. A cataclysmic experience led her to discern her call to ministry in November, 1995. She subsequently quit her job and moved to Atlanta, sight unseen, to pursue theological studies in 1997. Her pastor withheld ordination from her because she would not relent to his sexual harassment. Not one to be deterred, she left her denomination and finished seminary without even ever abandoning her vocation. Barriers to professional ministry have not discouraged her from exercising her calling. Her writings and service as an extension are an extension of Dion's defiant commitment to who and who she is. Her debut book, Deinstitutionalizing God, A Minister's Journey on Leaving Church to Save Her Faith, describes her spiritual journey while also analyzing organized religion. That's a lot. We're saying a lot, and we're going to get into a lot of that. I guess it's kind of ironic how we met, given today's topic. We were in a small group together, and it was a small group. It was part Bible study, part support group, part, I guess, fellowship. And we basically met because of both of our Christian journey. And so now it's really interesting that we're here to talk about spiritual trauma. Yeah.
2: Yes, indeed. And we've come full circle because you are supporting me in the continuation of my journey of fulfilling my vocation. So again, thank you.
1: You are so welcome. We support each other. I appreciate your support as well. Whenever I start an interview, I always like to start by giving my guests an opportunity to tell their story. So we heard a little bit about your background, but in your own words, how did you get to this point? of being the author of this brand new book?
2: Well, you told the high level version of the story and I don't want to give it all away, but I was raised in the church. My parents did not go to church. They sent my siblings and me to church. Some of the neighborhood children also went to church with us. And we never had a sense of belonging in the church though because the particular congregation we attended was pretty bourgeois and we were not invited, we just crashed. (laughs) And so part of me had this longing to belong. You know, always wanted to prove myself that I belonged, that I was a good, respectable person, worthy of going to church. And that's far from what Jesus came for. (laughs) And that was really, it wasn't even discipleship driving me. It was more social expectations Mm -hmm. that good, respectable people go to church. And when church rejects you, you know, you put up, you tolerate more or I tolerate it more than what I normally would be because I wanted to belong to this club.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel that. I mean, I think it's human nature for us to have to want to belong to something. I mean, if you think about how organizations are tribalism and how organizations are formed, we have this innate desire to want to belong. But when I think about our topic of spiritual trauma, and as I was preparing, I thought a little bit about my own experience. And so the first experience that I came up with around spiritual trauma was when I was a really young child and being invited to revival or vocational Bible school and watching this horrible, horrible movie about hell and fire and brimstone, and being completely terrified and having nightmares for days. That was my first experience with spiritual trauma. So I think everyone has different experiences or different ideas about what spiritual trauma is. So I would love to find out what your definition is and what you mean by spiritual trauma.
2: Well, first of all, I can only imagine what that was like for you and can understand how that would be traumatic for a child and even some adults facing that. But before I go into spiritual trauma, I'm going to define trauma in itself. And this is a reading from the book. Psychological trauma is defined as an emotionally shocking experience which has a lasting psychic effect, usually categorized as post-traumatic stress disorder. Trauma is not only deeply disturbing and immobilizing experience, It is also subjective. What matters most are the individual's internal beliefs and their innate sensitivity to stress, not whether a family member, therapist, or other outsider deems an experience traumatic. A person is the judge and jury of whether or not they have been injured psychologically. More often than not, people do not have a name or language to affix to the effects of their experience. Mm -hmm. And so we have people, I mean, most of the population has been traumatized one way or another. And we are a complex beings. We have a body, we have a mind, and we have a spirit. So it's obvious when the body has been traumatized, usually you have a broken bone, a soft tissue injury that can be diagnosed by imaging. You have a cut, you have bleeding. You know, those are obvious forms of trauma. Psychological trauma, uh, we've made a lot of progress in just the last 20 years even in diagnosing and identifying psychological trauma. Most of what we know today about trauma emerged from post-traumatic stress syndrome of the Vietnam veterans. And even then, you know, there weren't a lot of answers. Spiritual trauma is an emerging field of study. There's not a lot of Scholarship out there on it. I'm hoping to fill that. But back to the spirit the spirit is the invisible part of us. You know, when we are injured psychologically, you know, the brain changes. And so you can have MRI or CAT scan of the brain and see the physiological changes in the brain as a result of a psychological injury. Spiritual trauma doesn't lend itself so much to that. Because, again, spirit is the invisible part. It's the part of us that keeps us alive. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma, which is also translated wind. So, you know, let's say somebody knocked the air out of you. You know, that's what spiritual trauma feels like. And the spirit is the part of us that communes with the divine, with God. That's why we have a spirit. And spiritual trauma is anything that immobilizes or hinders you from communing with the divine and it cuts very deeply i didn't even know it existed until it happened to me and even when it happened to me i didn't have a word for it i didn't have the language i have didn't have a conceptual framework i mean it was probably like 20 years later that i <laughs> really got that because again there wasn't much out there not even been to therapy and therapists were not even aware or equipped to deal with this i studied pastoral care in seminary, we never even discussed it.
1: Wow. Wow. That makes sense. It seems like very ethereal, right? It's, yes. it's hard to kind of grasp or make tangible. And we already know how difficult it is to recognize even mental trauma, which like you said, is tangible. You can actually do an MRI and see the damage. So let alone spiritual trauma, which is very ethereal and hard to grasp.
2: But it does manifest. You know, even though it begins in the invisible realm, it manifests. Spiritual trauma can manifest as psychological trauma and change the brain. And as the brain changes, you can have psychosomatic effects, you know, illnesses that cannot be explained. The origin can't be explained. That happened to me. My body was mimicking an autoimmune disorder. And, you know, I even had to have a test for cancer because I had so many symptoms that mimic cancer. And by the grace of God, I didn't have any malignancies within me because it would have activated it, you know, because that's what stress does. And when they say stress kills, stress can be toxic. If you have anything wrong with you already, stress will exacerbate that or Mm -hmm. activate it, you know, something that's dormant within you. And so I did have a number of stress-related illnesses. Again, I, that I wasn't aware what the, root cause of those illnesses
1: were. I always, you know, talk about the relationship that we're connected, Mm -hmm. mind, body, spirit, but you just took it to another level, right? You just really brought that home in a way that is very visual for me, how all of that is connected. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain that and kind of break it down.
2: Oh, you're quite welcome. It gives physicians a new checklist even to ask people. And I remember being very ill, probably the sickest that I was while I was going through this. And after they did the test and everything, they said, we cannot explain what's happening to you physically. And a female provider held my hand, looked me in the eye and said, are you under any stress? And I looked her back in the eye with a straight face and said, no, (laughs) because I was so embarrassed about what was happening to me, even though it wasn't my shame to bear. And that, I mean, how often does that happen? It happens all the time.
1: Happens all the time. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say that I absolutely love reading the book. I could definitely see so much of your personality and humor throughout the book that I could really visualize you saying these things. I could kind of see the expression on your face and everything as you were saying some of the things. So I hope that everyone buys the book and Buys it for somebody else, because I think everyone can really benefit from reading it. But one of the things, as is in the title, Deinstitutionalizing um, God, I want to talk about, you talk about trauma and how trauma is experienced by many people in the church and that the institution itself and institutions, many institutions, but specifically the church can be a cause for trauma. Why do you think institutions, and specifically the institution of church, causes so much trauma?
2: Oh, mercy, because institutions don't have souls. (laughs) (laughs) Institutions are impersonal. Institutions are rule-driven. And so, you know, you think about your corporations you work for, the government, the, you know, universities, large organizations that Mm -hmm. we deal with. And it's so ironic how some of the most benevolent organizations can be so cruel. Mm. They have these wonderful flowery mission statements, but they wreak havoc on people who work there and that they serve. But they do it with a straight face because they can look at these lovely plaques on the wall and say, this is what we're about. Even though our actions don't align with our or their actions don't align with their words. And they play mind games on us because they're Mm -hmm. like, you know, you think about it when you're being abused by a person who says that they love you. You know, it produces deep cognitive dissonance. You know, a man can beat his wife or a wife can beat her husband. And five minutes later, they're kissing and hugging. And, you know, it's just a complicated thing to, when somebody has your head, that mess. So intuition thats our it's up. They start the school. We're indoctrinated <laughs> and socialized in school. And so that's where it all begins. And a lot of what passes for education, we know it's not true. But we have to pass the test. Mm -hmm. And it goes on throughout the rest of our life. We just try to reconcile our experience with the lies we've been told.
1: And that goes for the church. The church is an institution and it does lie to us. Absolutely. One of the things you also talk about a lot in the book is you reference the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember as a young Christian looking up to the clergy and just looking to them to be holy and to be holier than the rest of us. And I soon realized that they were just human beings, just like the rest of us. But for me, the cognitive dissonance occurred when it felt like the ministers and the clergy tried to control us and sort of project onto us this higher standard than what they were living. And also really tried to oppress the sexuality of women as a way of control. And I think that that can get very toxic and it can really kind of mess with your head a little bit. So I know that there were a lot of different things in that question, but can you talk a little bit about the game?
2: The long and short of the game is social control. The church and every institution has has to have some form of social control to maintain its membership and the people who feed the machine. You know, so the church has to have bodies you know, it's only as strong as the number of members it has and the amount of money in its coffers. And so, to maintain the bodies and the dollars, it's got to exert control. And that's where the game comes in. Just like a pimp controls a prostitute, you know, when a pimp is bringing a prostitute into the game, he doesn't announce it. The first thing he does is, you know, if she's a runaway in the bus station. He's gonna buy her lunch, tell her how pretty she is, take a to the boutique in the station and buy her a dress and act like he's the best thing she's ever met and she's so smitten. By the time she realizes what she's signing up for, you know he has awakened some feelings in her that she's never had before. She's never felt that appreciated and valued. Mm-hmm. That she's when she it comes time to sell her body, she's like, I don't want to lose this feeling. Mm-hmm. And so the same goes with the church. When you join the church, what's the first thing they do? They love bomb you. you know and that's really toxic (laughs) and we don't like to talk about it and uh, in sociology you know there's a cycle of abuse and the first part of that cycle is love join. everybody wants to be your friend wants to know your name wants to invite you to their house and make sure you feel like you belong get you in some clubs and that'll last long enough until they need to reallocate that er energy to some other new people but the love bombing conditions you psychologically to say, this is a good place. This place affirms me. This place is good for me. And when anything counter to that happens, the mind reverts back to that initial love bombing and not to the reality of how they're treating you or any other experience that doesn't align with what that organization really says it's about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I know in your book, you're talking about this from the perspective of a minister because you were working for the church, you weren't getting compensated. And I'm sure that there are some people who are churchgoers and the laity or who are just regular congregants just going to church who feel that, you know, they're not really traumatized or they're not really being abused. They feel like the love that they experienced when they first came into the church Maybe it waned off a little bit, but they're not feeling the negative side like you really felt it.
0: Do you think that
2: experience is different? Everybody's not traumatized in the church. Everybody's not being abused in the church. But, you know, as Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So abuse in the church is the threat to love in the church. You know, even though it's not happening to you, doesn't mean everything's okay. So when we join the body, because the church is the body of Christ, we are accountable to the entire body. We are entitled to, you know, girls being exploited by their pastors, boys being molested by their priests, people being abused financially and living on the margin while supporting the largesse of a spiritual leader. And then, you know, not being able to avail themselves because the early church shared all their properties in common. And I've known people who have been faithful financial stewards of their respective communities of faith. But when they had a need, the church was not there for them. Mm -hmm. And they could see the largesse of the leadership. But when they have a crisis and sometimes their crisis doesn't even amount to a lot of money, but it hurt. It cuts really deeply. When you've been so faithful because you're told this is what you do to support the body. You're not considered part of the body when you have a need. That's traumatizing. But trauma can happen a lot of different ways. And let me go back and say spiritual trauma doesn't only occur in the church. Your spirit can be traumatized in a bad marriage. Your soul can be sucked out of you in a job that you don't belong in. You know, that's just life. Things come at you differently, comes at your body, your mind, your soul. And it just depends on how it lands. But it's not just a matter of where it happens. It's a matter of
1: the net effect it has on you. That is the truth. I felt like you were about to start preaching right there. I was like, (laughs) because that's so true. Spiritual trauma can happen anywhere. And I like what you said about abuse of one is abuse of everybody because, you know, we're all connected. As a body, we're Mm -hmm. supposed to be connected. Some of us are the neck. Some of us are the hands. Some of us are the feet. So if we're connected to one body and one part of the body is being abused, it's going to eventually affect us. And we can't ignore that. It's just like when you're sick and your feet hurt, everything hurts. (laughs) When your feet hurt, everything hurts. So yeah.
2: Yeah. And it reminds me of just this past week, You know, the case with the Southern Baptist church where a young lady or a pastor admitted to committing adultery and the congregation applauded him for his confession and surrounded him and laid hands and prayed on him at the end of service. But there was a woman in the congregation who stood up after his announcement and said, I was 16 when you raped me in your office and you exploited me sexually for nine years following that. And people in the church knew about it. And at the end of the service, they all surrounded the pastor, not her.
1: After hearing that they still surrounded him.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: There's a very strange relationship that starts to occur between this protective nature that sometimes people have over their pastors. Mm -hmm. And what it reminds me of is like what you said of the example of the pimp and the prostitute. Once you've been kind of gamed and you've gone through the grooming process and all of those things, then your ability to see clearly is forever altered. And that's almost what it sounds like when you give these types of examples of people just seeing evil and not calling it out for what it is.
2: That's absolutely right. And I've seen it play out many times where even when I was going through You know, the first thing I thought about was, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) So it took a long time for me to accept that this man is trying to sexually exploit me. And I just kept saying to myself, I'm just caught up in a bad movie. And then once I accepted, this is really happening. I have to find my way out. And I believe someone in the church was going to rescue me. They were going Mm -hmm. to hold him accountable, help get me ordained, allow me to serve freely and that never happened. Now that was more soul crushing than the initial offense because people and this didn't just happen in one church. This happened, you know, it started at one church here in DC. I went to Atlanta to seminary, you know, and people down there knew what was going on. And people at the seminary knew what was going on. I came back to DC, joined another church, and they're like, Oh, you've been to seminary, you're not ordained. Why aren't you ordained? Tell them why I'm not ordained. Mm-hmm. They're like, ooh, I can't touch that. Because they all know the political ramifications of touching that third rail in the church. And yeah. people would rather be comfortable. People would rather hold esteemed positions. Nobody wants to make waves. They're like, don't mess this up for us. Yeah. <laughs> and quite like, frankly, a lot of them are glad that I'm gone because they're like, we can keep on going on with the show. Right. You know, these Things happen. And again, it's not an isolated incident. This happens across denominations, across ethnicities and race, racial groups. It's just the nature of when I said, when humanity and divinity interface, people are ill, you know, and they bring human nature into what's supposed to be sacred.
1: Absolutely. Uh, we do have a comment or a question. And the question was, how are you working to liberate yourself from the social constructs of the church? And I'm going to put a pin in that because I think we're going to get to that a little bit later. Okay. One of the other comments was that calling out hypocrisy comes at a high price. Mm-hmm. And that's very true. Anytime you speak truth to power, there's a consequence to that, right? Absolutely. There's a consequence to it. You have suffered many of consequences, but yet, you still speak the truth.
2: Yes, and I've that. been told in so many ways that if you shut up, <laughs> you know, we'll give you the spoils of the institution. But for me, shutting up would be even more traumatic. It would internalize my oppression. And I'm free. And I'll give you the short answer. We can get the liberative part. But the moment I start talking about this, I was free because I knew, okay, <laughs> they're just not going to make it happen for me. So let me keep in St. Augustine, a a father from the eighth century said freedom is another word for nothing left to lose. And the church has already made it clear. They never going to ordain me. So I'm going to tell it all and I'm Mm -hmm. going to help people liberate themselves. I'm already liberated. took a long time to get there, but I'm going, I'm trying like Harriet Tubman. I'm going back trying to free some other people. I'm not telling Mm -hmm. anybody to leave their churches or leave their community of faith, but I, would like to engage in a dialogue with people to help them to assess whether where they're planted right now is best for them. And mm-hmm. if it's not, you know, what do you need to do to a, either find what's best for you or rehabilitate where you are? But I'll warn you, institutions are very resistant to change. And if you notice, Jesus Christ never tried to change the religious establishment of his death. He came, he brought a new thing. He said, y'all can stay behind if you want to, but I'm going, I'm moving forward. I'm doing this new thing over here. And if you want to come to the new thing, you come to the new thing. If you want to stay in the old thing, stay in the old thing. But those are hard choices because people, usually the number one reason people go to church is because that's my family church. ain't got nothing to do with Jesus. My grandfather (laughs) built this church. You know, my daddy's the pastor, You, you know. Oh, I'm trying to marry the pastor or something. It's usually some kind of social tie or this is where all the bougie people in my community go. And I want to be identified with them. So I'm going to join. I don't have money for a country club, but I'm going to join the church.
1: Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah, You are telling it. One of the other things that was really interesting to me about the book was how you compared the church to a mental institution. You said that overconsuming organized religion can be like opting to be in an insane asylum versus doing outpatient treatment. So I just want you to explain more, because I'm sure there are a lot of church goers who might feel like going to church keeps them out of an insane asylum versus it being an insane asylum.
2: Oh, my God. The whole book. I mean, if you look at the cover of the book, it's the church behind bars. And those bars aren't prison bars; those are insane asylum bars. (laughs) That was the image that came to me as I struggled to make sense out of what was going on. And I realized I'm a management consultant by trade, and a lot of that work is grounded in organizational psychology. The church is crazy; (laughs) it is going to make you crazy if you take if you consume too much of it. I'm telling you, I'm not lying. I was going there; I was going crazy. And they were already there. And I'm like, okay, trying to be with them. So let me pump my brakes, get some therapy and get home. <laughs> but I'm going to read from the book. And my specialty in management consulting is healthcare. So I use a lot of health imagery in here. So this is on 108 if anybody has the book. Most believers and seekers do not require inpatient acute spiritual care. Overconsumption of religion, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, is akin to locking a person in an asylum. In our society, people are institutionalized involuntarily when they are a threat to themselves, a threat to others, or unable to care for themselves. Individuals can also commit themselves voluntarily when they feel unsafe or a threat to someone or society or are a danger to themselves. Are these the conditions under which discipleship should be administered? Imagine how many more works of love could be performed without so much bureaucracy and overhead.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And in management consulting, you know, when we're helping organizations live up to their mission or be more efficient, the first thing we do is look at how they spend their money. And it says, okay, this is your mission statement over here. And you say you want to do a B and C benevolent, wonderful things and change the world. And let's look at your books and see how you spend money. And if you're spending of your money on overhead, that's not leaving much for mission. You're not a mission-driven organization. And if you look at most churches, overhead and and institutional maintenance is like their largest line item. So
0: Mm -hmm.
2: they're not mission-driven organizations if they're spending that much on overhead.
1: So if we go with your imagery, your medical imagery with the insane asylum and with the outpatient treatment, So one of the things I noticed is that you said excessive, over-consuming, organized religion. So what would you consider to be over-consuming, organized religion?
2: That's a relative question, and each person has to determine for themselves. Some people can go to church one day a week, 52 Sundays a year, but that's still more than they need. Some people can go six days a week, and, you know, I doubt that's usually too much, but... Usually you have to look at the whole of your life and say, this is what you believe. You know, we all have 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If we make it a through the week, how did you spend your time? What do you say you stand for? How much of your time did you spend doing things? You say you stand versus just the church. Going to church doesn't really accomplish your personal mission. It's supposed to be equipping you. That's what church is about. It's about equipping and discipling and Jesus said what he said right before he went to heaven go ye therefore go get out of here go out disciple the world yes he didn't say go go and build doors play music real loud dance shout stomp he didn't say do all that he said go and he didn't even spend that much time with his own disciples they hung out they huddled and he sent them out go on go on out of here go teach. (laughs) And so most people who are over consuming religion are not even equipped to disciple the world Mm -hmm. or to serve the world. They ain't even interested in serving the world, really. They consider going to church their service. That's not service.
1: When you talk about that and you talk about over consuming religion and sort of kind of being that Pavlovian relationship of just kind of being controlled, it really makes me think about this whole guns and God thing Mm. that seems to be going on now. Like in my mind, I cannot even fathom how people have married those two, that guns and God Mm. go hand in hand. But I feel like if you sit in a congregation for, you know, week in and week out where the message is being fed to you, just like propaganda, that this is who we are, this is what we do, that again, it's that same game, that same being pimped. And that's what you end up with. You end up with people who have this warped theology where they think that guns and God go together.
2: Yes. And that's the result of overconsumption. It turns off the brain and overconsumption usually is a form of conditioning. You think about it. Girl meets boy. Girl spends all her waking hours with boy and even sleep with him at night. So they're together for, you know, 16 hours a day and talking on the phone half of that time she at work. He got her mind. And he can tell her anything and she's going to believe it until he doesn't serve her anymore. But as long as he's serving her, she's going to believe everything she said because she wants to maintain that feeling. And so it is with the church. The guns and God crowd, they're sitting in church. And as long as that church is serving them in some way, meeting some kind of psychological, cultural need, they'll swallow whatever it is whole until the pastor raped their daughter. But sometimes the pastor raped their daughter and it's still safe. <laughs> Seriously, I've seen (laughs) it happen because they're like, I need this feeling. It becomes a drug. I think about just what two generations ago when America was still lynching, you know, when civilians were deputized and doing the lynching. Families would go to church and they would read the announcement in the church. White churches, they would read the announcement. There's a lynching in the park at one o'clock. And all the church goers come from different churches from all around the area, gather in the park, and watch a lynching after you've just been to church and listened to a sermon. And your pastor just read the announcement and told you to go make that make sense, right?
1: Right? And we
2: do some yeah. great stuff in the black community, too. We follow what these some of these pastors say, and I just like wow, yeah, that's one of the reasons I had to pull back because I found myself sometimes. Following the absurdities that were being fed for whatever my reasons were. I can't even tell you what they were. I was just caught up until I felt the need to extract myself. And I'm like, whoa, this is going too far off the rails for me. And I had to get out. And now when I go back in, you know, I can only take it in small doses because let me tell you, there's more bad theology out there than the average churchgoer could stomach hearing (laughs) what, you know, calling it out that's another peril of overconsumption. You are just not
1: rational about processing the information that's being fed to you. Yeah. I think that that really speaks to what Shannon said. She had a comment that so many religious wars throughout history Mm -hmm. uh, make it easy for them to believe that guns and God go together. And that's a great historical perspective too. The church was, you know, was very bloody, (laughs) the spread of Christianity. So yeah, that makes sense. Now, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about is that when we talk about trauma, one of the things that really became clear to me as I was reading the book is that trauma is compounded. Uh, Mm -hmm. You talked about you had trauma from some losses that you experienced in addition to what was happening to you, the sexual harassment that was happening to you within the church. So lots of traumas, financial traumas, but one of the traumas was the fact that the women oh. in the church did not advocate for you or, and did not support you. And I am really passionate about us. And this whole SOAR community is really about us supporting each other. So I would love for you to tell me how that felt for you and then how you overcame it in order to want to be in community with other women again. Because I think lots of women have trauma from their relationships with women. So how do you overcome that?
2: Oh, absolutely. I'm going to read your past from the book, and then I'm going to ask your question. And this is right at the height of the sexual harassment before I left the church. So I sat through worship Sunday after Sunday during the height of my struggle, trying to hold it together. I went to great lengths to ensure my hair, clothes, and makeup were tight while I was unraveling inside. I would enter church and greet everyone enthusiastically. Then I would go to the pastor's office and show him some love. Rev acted as if we were on the best of terms and not engaged in intense warfare while others were present. The choir, ministers, and acolytes would proceed into the sanctuary to launch the dog and pony show. Some days I could barely make it through service without being reduced to tears. Mm -hmm. Almost every sister in ministry I know can recount a time or 20 when she has felt the same way. I've had the privilege of functioning as a member of the ministerial staff, but it was only symbolic. Others have been ordained for years while watching less qualified men receive coveted positions. Yet, we play along with the vain hope that we can get ours and the game will change on its own. And my insult to injury was the fact that so many sisters in ministry would come to me, pull me to the side and say, girl, you got it bad. <laughs> and some, mind you, some of them just went ahead and slept for their papers because they were like, I ain't got time for this. But some of them, nobody wants to sleep with, so they ain't had that struggle. But... <laughs> <laughs> I know I've had women say, uh, seriously, at, at the church where this happened, they're like, well, I've known Red for all these years, he ain't never done this to me. I'm like, well, you ain't cute. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, (laughs) that but a lot of them were saying you know i had a struggle somehow somebody helped me maneuver my way through the system but i ain't gonna help you (laughs) because they want to get invited to preach at women's day they want to pastor a small church with 50 people (laughs) you know they want the crumbs they will take the crumbs they will sacrifice all their sisters just to get some crumbs and their wettest dream is probably to marry a pastor who got the spoils and she can just co-pastor with him or share his spoils. But there's no solidarity among women in church. And I remember when I was in the AME church, they had this group called women in ministry. And I'm like, "Whoa, yeah, women getting together and they preach real loud. Let me go talk to them and see, you know, if they'll help me out. And they're like, nah, girl, (laughs) because they wanted to keep preaching. They wanted to keep getting appointments and getting the spoils of the system. But when the system comes down hard on them, guess what they do? They come back and they want the same people who they've been marginalizing to advocate for them. So that was an extreme disappointment. And even with the publication book, I had one preacher say, thank you for writing about what we normally only talk about in private. But she's still only talking about it in private. My phone be ringing off the hook and I have people emailing and texting me talking, girl, I want to talk to you about your book. I'm like, write me a review, invite me to your church to preach, talk about this openly yourself, all the little secrets yes. and, and innuendo that you telling me I'm burning my ear about put it out there because yes. just telling me ain't that's not what's that going on in there. I already told my story, but they're not yeah. going to tell their story. They're not going to um, stand in the gap for sisters. They just, again, they're being very self-serving. And like I said, You know, it is still that threat to the body still persists, Mm -hmm. you know, even when I was in seminary, I mean, it was really intense in seminary because it's like women were fighting for, they knew there was only a small amount of spoils for women. Yeah. You know, even though we're the overwhelming majority of the church, there's no reason we shouldn't be running this.
1: The patriarchy is strong.
2: (laughs) And it would not persist without our full complicit support.
1: Yeah. We should Absolutely. be turning them
2: tables over like Jesus, but we don't do that. We just preach real loud on, on women's day and we get real. They let us get sassy a couple times a on women's Retreat and this day and the other. But get back in your place the rest of the time. And so most of the time, these sister circles and these women's fellowships and all this other stuff, they just turn out to be like hen parties or just girlfriend gatherings, but not really places where we huddle you know, harness our power and say, we're going out here and change this, not just Mm -hmm. for ourselves, but for the integrity of the body of Christ. That's not happening. And that's what I assumed was happening. Because again, I had attended some women's retreats and sat through Women's Day sermons. And I'm like, wow, these sisters are doing it, but they just performing.
1: Well, so the second part of my question was, how did you get past that to want to be in community with women again? So I guess I need to rephrase that. How does that work for you? Are you still open to being in community with women again after experiencing these very disappointing, hurtful experiences?
2: Oh, I don't hate women at all. And I have sister friends. I have neighbors, I have family members. Love is where you find it. And I have males who have been very supportive of me. And I remember the week after this book was released, I was invited to present it to a clergy fellowship here in DC. And one pastor of what's supposed to be one of the most progressive churches in the city said, Oh, I'm bringing you to my church to preach. I was like, okay, let's holler. So, you know, I said, let's talk. Two days later, we talked, Child, that invitation had been rescinded as quickly as he offered it.
1: Wow.
2: But I'll tell you this. Do you this. know why? Child, we talked for an hour before he told me. He, we just kicking it, talking, talking. I said, well, the purpose of this call was for us to talk about your invitation, and we almost had an hour. What's up? And he's like, oh, yeah, about that. I'm like, yeah, I see you. Mm. And, but I'll say, I have a male friend from college who pastors a church outside of Baltimore. You know, and when he ordered the book, he read the book. He was like, girl, this is it. This is it. He invited me to preach at his church. That's the only one I got so far. And he's already making it happen. He got my contact information, doesn't know to get the official, you know, invitation and all that other stuff. And he is about it about it. He sent a copy of the book to his bishop. Wow. And he said, the bishop needs to read this. <laughs> and I'm like, When people ask me, what can I do? I see Janine, my lion's sister over here asking, what can we do as individuals to start to address these challenges? Now that you know, you're accountable because when you get to that throne, you know, we all have to give an account of our practice of faith in our lives and support women. First of all, I've seen women get appointed Mm -hmm. to churches as pastor. First thing the church say before she even show up, I've even seen where they lock the door so she can't even get in. We don't want a woman pastor. Support women pastors. Support women who are in ministry, but maybe not pastoring. You know, when she preached, show up. Don't just show up to church when the pastor preaching. Show up when the sister preaching. Show up to her Bible study. You know, encourage her. Give her some money because she ain't making nearly as much money as her brothers in ministry. There are lots. Invite her to preach. Invite sisters to preach at your church. They don't get invited out that much. There are lots of ways, lots of ways. And also, even beyond supporting sisters in ministry, support everybody in their spiritual growth so we can have an equitable society within our community of faith. Jesus didn't make distinctions between men and women. He taught women. He taught men. You know, sometimes the disciples, they're a little dimwitted but sitting off to the side talking why Jesus over there talks to that woman. He wasn't hung up on that. And that's what happened with the woman at the well. And she turned out to be a great evangelist in John chapter four. But they don't give her credit for that. When anybody preach about her, they always preach about her five hugs or the five men she had. But they don't never read to the end of the story where Jesus discipled her and she went on to become a great evangelist long before the 12. Well, I'm so glad support, you said that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because as Andrew- you. As you were talking, I was thinking of some bishops who need to read your book that I will send the book to them. So definitely, yeah, because this needs to be a movement. Uh, Clearly, by what you just said, that that one invitation was rescinded, it just means that the institution is protecting the status quo. But it needs to be a revolution to change the status quo because the status quo is not acceptable.
2: Not um, at all. I had a cousin. Her son was shot to death and she asked me to preach his eulogy. And then she called me back and she says, oh, well, the pastor, of the church really don't want women in his pulpit. I said, well, why do you go to that church? And she mm-hmm. said, well, you can call him and talk to him. And I said, I ain't got to explain my call to nobody. If you don't want me in this church, I'm not coming.
1: And in 2022,
2: this was five years ago, but still it was recent. But still. But you know what? I didn't even call him. I said, I ain't begging nobody to preach at this church, but she couldn't find nobody else who knew her son. And the church finally got back to me. One of the associate pastors called and said, you know, the pastor said it's OK. OK, so I went to you, eulogy. The pastor wasn't there. And uh, the associate pastor came up afterwards like, wow, you were great. Da, da, da. Like, Lord, please. And then, of course, he tried to hit on me after that. Get out my face. it's it's deep. It's deep. The corruption is deep. Or just the assigned roles. You know, even though I'm there in the capacity of preaching, for him, I'm there as a sex object. Mm -hmm. You know, they can't even get past that. And even beyond men, and all men aren't like that, but enough are. But a lot of the times they just see us as servile. Our fellow women are more culpable of that too where they will not respect the authority of a woman and they'll try to flip through their Bible and find some justification. I don't even engage that. I'm like, girl, just go on somewhere. And you just got to keep it moving. That's been the most healthy thing for me, just not trying to justify myself, just like Jesus. You know, they call him a drunkard and a demon and all kinds of things. He never argued with people about who he was and what he was doing. He just
1: kept doing it. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm just doing what God called me to do. Dion, you are amazing in terms of your ability to have perspective and to still keep moving and to still keep your faith. One of the things that I really wanted to know, I always ask about limiting beliefs. What are some of the limiting beliefs that you had to overcome in order to accept the fact that you were not going to be ordained in the AME Church or the United Methodist Church? What limiting beliefs did you have to overcome?
2: Well, first of all, I had to overcome the fact that they didn't call me. So their ordination is just ornamental. It's just icing on the cake. But God, from the moment God called me, that was it. It was sealed. But it took me a long time to accept that. Matter of fact, an ex-boyfriend of mine, who I grew up in church with, you know, one day I'm groaning and moaning to him on the phone. And he said, what's stopping you from preaching? And I'm talking about all this stuff in the church. He said... None of that's stopping you. He said, girl, you, all you need to do is just start preaching. And so I start writing, blogging, you know, whenever anybody would invite me, I would come. Even the church ain't had no money. Don't call me if you ain't got no money now. But there was a time when I was in a position where I would just go wherever I was invited. And so you have to just seize, just do it. Like mm-hmm. Michael Jordan said, just do it. But again, I had to stop, believe, stop wanting what they had to offer. Mm-hmm. That was the limiting. thing, And that's freedom. That was so liberating. Oh, my God. But again, that's a form of trauma. I was talking to one of my sisters in ministry about this because she's going through something similar now. She didn't get ordained for different reasons. But when the church refuses to ordain someone who has been duly called and anointed by God, that is traumatic on them. Mm -hmm. Because going back to spiritual trauma, the spirit, that's the life giving force within you. When you deny them the opportunity to live out the life that's hid within them through Jesus Christ, that's violence. That's spiritual Mm -hmm. violence. And they're going to be accountable for that. And I had to stop worrying about what they're
1: doing, but just know they're going to be accountable for that and keep doing what I got to do. I love it. I love it. You definitely overcame that belief that you needed to have their permission. You needed to have their certification to validate your calling. And just accept it, you know, God called me, I'm called no matter what they do. And that allowed you to move forward. Another part of the book that I wanted to talk about, because it really resonated with me, and it was where you quoted Shakespeare and Hamlet, and he said, to thine own self be true. And you used another quote that I was less familiar with, I had never heard it before, that described human beings as guilty of only one sin and that being inauthenticity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I personally believe yes. that authenticity is so important. And so I would love to hear what you have to say and share with women about being authentic and true to themselves.
2: Yes, that quote is from, and he says the only sin human beings are capable of is inauthenticity. And he defines inauthenticity as not d- being what God created you to be. Mm -hmm. And so again, God called me to preach. And so for me not to preach would be a sin. And again, the institution not allowing me to, they never said I couldn't preach. They'll let you preach all you want. It just won't make you, let you earn a living off of it. But again, that's muzzling the ox. That's sin. And there are people who are dying inside on jobs everywhere. Mm -hmm. Knowing that's not what God created you to do. And that's sin. So we all must go to our quiet places, look inside. And before you leave this earth, really figure out why am I here? Why am I still here? Why has God allowed me to live when so many others have died? And what do I want him to say? Well done, that good and faithful servant over me when I meet him on that day. You know, what is it that will make him say that to me and then go do that?
1: Absolutely. When I went through the process of gaining clarity on what my purpose was, that's really what rung true for me. I felt that there was something that I should be doing outside of practicing medicine. And I knew that if I did not do it, that I would be at risk of not hearing well done like an faithful servant because I knew it was what God had purposed in my heart to do what part of my life was about. So that really resonates with me also. When people write books like this, I'm always amazed that it's labor intensive to write a book. I mean, there's so much, there's historical facts, there's quotes, there's your story and there's your story ter- told in intertwining ways. It's just amazing that you're able to put this pen to paper and put this in print. What lessons did you learn in the process of writing this book?
2: Well, the first lesson is to just put it all out there the first draft of everything is crap. And so don't even try to write a masterpiece. Just express yourself. Don't try to edit it. Don't try to order it. Don't try to write chapter one to chapter 12. Just put it out there. You can edit, cut, paste, do whatever you do later, but just get it all out there and be honest with yourself and be honest with your readers. A lot of people write books to be impressive. And it shows a lot of times you read books. You can tell when people aren't being authentic. And Mm -hmm. for me, this book is a far cry from the first version. And I had a very good friend who's known me all my life, read the first draft and was like, this ain't good. (laughs) But he knew my story. And he said, you're holding back too much and you're being too kind to those who oppressed you. He said, they showed you no grace. Don't show them no mercy. And I still was fairly merciful in this telling, but I had to unleash a lot and even unleash my feelings because part of being traumatized is suppressing the feelings because you don't want to feel what you went through again. So there were times where I had to put this down for months at a time because I opened a can of worms that was very painful. And so I had to give my permission to say, I'm not going to do this for a while. I'm going to heal. I'm going to go do some healing work and then come back to this. So I couldn't be in a rush. I wanted to write this. You know how people had these little workshops. I write a book in 30 days, write a book in 90 days. I can guarantee you any book written in 30 or 90 days is not going to be good. Just like a pot <laughs> of gumbo made. And you know, people said, throw all your stuff in a crock pot, turn it on for an hour. That's going to be some terrible gumbo. <laughs> but if <laughs> my grandma it all day, that's going to be some good gumbo. So trust the process, let it unfold, don't have a timeline, and you'll know when it's good and
1: when it's done. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So much wisdom in that statement. The other thing I wanted to ask you is who should read this book and why? I mean, you told us a little bit that the church leadership definitely needs to read this book, but who else should read this book and why? Everybody should read the book. (laughs) <laughs> but seriously, my target audience, in the dedication,
2: I wrote, <laughs> this is so funny, it's so much I don't remember writing. But the dedication reads, to all who dare to believe but were disappointed. So mm-hmm. I didn't write the book for church people. I wrote this for people who find themselves outside of the community of faiths they once belonged to. And I'm not writing it so they can go back. If it leads them back, you know, so be it but I'm writing it so people can become whole. People have been injured. And again, that soul, that spiritual injury is profound. I remember laying in bed, just driving in pain, not knowing why, because my soul was hurting. My soul was crying. And again, I couldn't function. You know, there's so many things that were happening. And even once I realized why, it wasn't until I saw a psychiatrist for something wholly unrelated Was she able to say, oh, girl, you trauma. When I told her about this happening, you know, she was like, that was traumatic. And so she gave me a safe space to unpack it. So as the pain, as this painful telling it, you know, she gave me ways to regulate my stress, you know, to stop ruminating over it and playing the tape over and over in my Mm -hmm. head. Stop reacting physically and making myself sick. And most people need some kind of care some kind of assistance, coaching, clinical care. And unfortunately, there's not enough to go around. Especially with the pandemic, all the therapist's calendars are booked. So the care that I needed was in very short supply. Books like this didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago when I went through. And there are more coming out, but still not enough. And we need to talk about it. If you're hurting, tell somebody. And they may not be able to help you, but they can direct you to where you can get some help. I mean, I walked around for years in pain. Matter of fact, my sisters, my siblings called me when they read the book and was like, girl, why you ain't say nothing? Yeah. My mother, she knew some of it, but she didn't know how deep the cut went. Nobody, I don't think anybody knew to tell the truth because I didn't even know how deeply I was injured.
1: Yeah. So as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, is there anything else that you would like to share tonight about spiritual trauma, about the book, any words that you would like to leave?
2: Well, first of all, again, I didn't write this book to bash the church. I wrote the church book to tell a story, give my account of what happened to me. What happened to me has not happened to everybody. So I'm not prescribing that people work out their faith the way that i worked out my faith, but I'm giving people, I'm provoking questions and conversations For people to work out their own faith with fear, salvation with fear and trembling and ask the right questions about whether what they're doing is serving them and actually serving the Lord. Or are you just going through the motions? My goal for this book is to reform the church. When we go to communities, I'm hoping people will read this book in community and say, you know, how do we reform the body of Christ? Yeah, our pastor may be upstanding, and there are many standing pastors out there, but there are many out there who are not. What are we going to do about it? My greatest shock about writing this book was that everybody who heard the stories about Rev and even people I told orally, everybody was like, oh, he was awful. Everybody knew how terrible he was, but nobody did a thing about it. And there are a lot of awful Mm. pastors out there right now that nobody's doing anything to hold accountable or confront So, again, I'm hoping that, you know, this becomes a clarion call to say Mm -hmm. and think about the people who have fallen away from your communities of faith. Do you really want them back? Do you care that they're gone? Do you care that they're hurting? And if you don't care, you really need to check yourself, because that means Mm -hmm. you're not caring about the whole body. You're caring about yourself and pieces of the body you like. And that's not pleasing to God.
1: So what I am hearing is that this book is really a call to action for all of us to reform the faith community. So none of us can say we don't know, right? We've read the book, we know. And once you know, you have a responsibility to act, you know? So so I'm taking that on personally as a call to action. And I'm hoping that everybody who listens to this podcast will take it on as a call to action as well. Um, There's something that we can all do. So I know I saw one comment that well somebody saying it's akin to the Me Too movement in the church and yeah it definitely is akin so to there's that. There's actually a movement out there called Church Two.
2: If you mm-hmm. if you search on that hashtag, there are lots of So, Matter of fact, my next book was supposed to be called Tales from the Church of, and it was a collection of stories of really bad things that have happened. In Christian communities. Well, they done beat me to it. If you go on Twitter and search on church too, a whole things worse than I knew of it or could
1: imagine have happened. Wow. So one, one person did ask, they said, I need the book. So where can they buy the book? And also, how can they contact you? How can they follow you so that they do know, they know firsthand when this next book, whatever your next book is, is coming out and all of the wonderful things that you're doing as you speak truth to power.
2: Thank you. The next book is actually going to be on trauma. One of my beta readers is a psychotherapist. And he said he wanted to hear more about my actual recovery from the spiritual trauma. And at the time of this writing, I didn't have the vocabulary or framework to speak to that. And then it would just have overtaken my story. So I said, that's the next book. So I'm studying and researching now to produce that. If you would like to contact me, you can go to my website, DionBrown.com. D-I-O-N-N-E-B-R-O-W-N.com. And there you can also email me at dbrown at DionBrown.com. My social media handles are all on the website. The book is available wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, thrift books, books, a million Walmart, and locally at politics and pros. That's the only retailer that has it on the shelves. I know some people want to touch it, feel it and flip through it before they read it, but it's good. I'm going to tell you, if you don't like it, I'll, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> but um, You can go on my website. If you'd like an autograph copy, it's available for sale on my website. And if you would like it autograph, please let me know. And if I know you already, I'm going to autograph it anyway. But thank, yeah. you, thank you for your interest in the book and your support of this project.
1: Yes. Thank you for your time. Thank you for spending this time with us here on the SOAR podcast and for telling your story and for having the courage. You know, I think courage begets courage. You were probably born with a lot of courage. Maybe some of us weren't born with as much courage, but the fact that you stepped out there and you were able to do what you can do, it's going to inspire other people to be a little bit more courageous. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you. And I'll say, I wasn't always so courageous. There were times when I had the wind knocked out of me, you know, for years, walking around with this burden. And so I had to come back into myself. But again, that's the nature of trauma, of psychic and spiritual trauma. You lose yourself. It's a process to come back to yourself. And um, again, it's hard. And most of the time, people need help to do that. It's it's very um, almost impossible to do it by yourself, but it is possible, but the chances are not as high.
1: Well, I'm so glad that you were able to go through that healing process and I cannot wait to read the next book and really read a little bit more about that process. So thank you and have a good night and thank you all for joining us on our uh, discussion and hopefully we'll see you next time. Good night. Good night.
0: Sisters come together now, come together now. It's time to help each other out, help each other out. It's time for transformation.